So we're finally entering our last minor prophet, the book of Malachi. We would rightly date this around 430-ish. So after this, this is in the right place in the canon. It's put there for a specific reason. After this, we go into what is known as the 400 uh, silent years. And that doesn't mean that God wasn't involved or that he wasn't acting. It simply means that during those years, there was no scripture being given. We don't have any rock-solid occurrence or historical event in this book to say this is where we can where we can date it or place it in history but there are indicators that would let us know why we can date it around 430 BC so you have 430 BC Malachi comes along uh, the people have some of them have returned to Israel the temple has been rebuilt. The walls have been rebuilt at this time. But Israel at this point has gotten very dry in their worship, in their love for God. They're kind of going through the ritual. Haggai and Zechariah had preached about a 100 years before. Some of their reforms now were in the distant past. And the changes that were made are are now changing. People are not feeling the same way anymore. And so God calls Malachi, this messenger sent by God, to come and to stir the people up again, to right worship, to the worship of Yahweh. And after he's done with this message, we have roughly 400 years and then we have the appearance of Christ. The Messianic age begins. But at this point, Israel is disappointed. They thought, surely the temple has come. The, the rebuilding of the walls has taken place. Surely the Lord is going to come. He's going to come to his temple. And at this point, it hadn't happened. And so people are kind of just going through the motions. We could say in many ways that they were kind of just going to church. And by the way, we see less and less people in America going to church. It is not the equivalent of going to the temple, but we can, we can definitely make some, some parallel points. And it should concern our hearts when we see this. Oh God, bring us back to a place of worship. Uh, bring us back to a place of excitement for, for who you are. But there's no uh, definitive date that we have, but from internal evidence, it seems that we can rightly date this around 430 B.C. And we say this because the temple has been rebuilt at this point. We know that from the text. Malachi is dealing with issues that Nehemiah had already dealt with, so it seems that he is during the time or perhaps after the time of Nehemiah. So that gives us an idea of when we can date this text. And in our chapter, chapter 1, verse 8, it refers to a, a governor, a civil ruler. And we know that Nehemiah was the last civil ruler under Persia. So we have these and other indicators that would tell us that Malachi is indeed the last canonical book 
that we have in the Old Testament. So we have Malachi, then we have the silent years, no scripture is being, being given. Let's go over that again. We have Malachi, then the silent years. And by the way, it's during these silent years that we often uh, find or hear about the, the books of the Apocrypha. This is when many of those books were written that we have in Catholic Bibles that kind of go between the Old and the New Testament. We say because uh, they are not from the Lord, they are not Scripture, we do not include them in our Bibles, so we go right from the Old Testament, then there's this period of time, and then we go into the New Testament. Of course, we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We have the first uh, Gospels, the Gospels that are, are written to us to tell us about the kingdom of Christ. But the people here are having a problem. And the main problem here is they don't appreciate God. Whenever, whenever we talk about appreciation, uh, we, we say it to people, we say things like, I appreciate you. But the word appreciate actually means a lot more than that. Thomas Watson, in his uh, a great book, talks about the first way that we glorify God is by appreciating him. When we come to God, we can rightly say, Lord, I appreciate you. Now, in our vernacular today, that might sound kind of cheap, and we might say, well, we want to say more than that to God, but he actually writes this. This is very profound, very interesting. So when he's talking about uh, glorifying God, and by the way, that's the reason that we are created. We are created to glorify God. We're not created because God was lonely. We're not created because God needed uh, friends and uh, was struggling and didn't have a relationship with anyone. So he said, I need somebody to play tennis with or something along those lines. That's not why God created man, and that's not why he created woman. He created us so that we would know him, so that we would glorify him, so that we would enjoy him. And part of that glorifying of him is really appreciating him. So when we begin to think about this, this term appreciation, it's more than just saying to somebody, you know, just kind of, hey, I appreciate you. And we, we, we say that, and, uh, or we say we appreciate this, we uh, appreciate that. But it's interesting, we come to Watson and he says, actually, the, the first way that we glorify God is by appreciating him. He says this, quote, appreciation. To glorify God is to set God, God highest in our thoughts and to have a venerable esteem, that is great respect, of him. When we come to God, we have him as the highest in our thoughts. God, there is no one higher than you. We respect you. We fear you. In fact, in the book of Malachi, one of the main issues was they had lost a, a reverence. They had lost a fear for God. And whenever we talk about a fear of God, it's, it's easy to kind of get into this, I'm scared to death of God. You know, and kind of this wincing and this kind of cowering away from the Lord. That, that's not what the fear of God is. The fear of God is a holy reverence and a holy awe before him. Lord, I, I esteem you. 
This is what we mean when we say uh, we appreciate him. I reverence you, Lord. Lord, you're the utmost in, in my thoughts. And the truth is, for some of us, we need to be awakened to that for the first time. That's what salvation is. It's coming to a place of where we actually fall, fall into a place of awe before the Lord. And yet as believers, we see that this is often so weak in ourselves. And, and I'm convinced that the more we grow in Christ, the more we need to say to ourselves, Lord, I want to awe you more. I, I want to have more reverence for you. Lord, I understand, I think, to some degree that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But God, would you teach me what that means? What does it actually mean to, to fear you? When we talk about this uh, word appreciate, it actually means in the English to recognize the full worth of. So when we are talking about appreciating God, it's not to cheapen anything. It's to come to a place of where we say, God, we realize your worth. God, we realize the infinite value of who you are. So when we have something appraised, we take in um, a piece of jewelry and uh, the, the jeweler looks at it and says, well, uh, I'm sorry, this is uh, worth uh, $10. We go, okay, thank you, that's what it's worth. Or we take a car in and we have it appraised. We have it appreciated. What are we asking for? We're asking for what the actual worth is of that thing. And so when we appreciate God, we are saying, what is your worth? What is your worth? This is why we... This is why we sing songs like Worthy, Worthy, Worthy is a Lamb, or um, Worthy, Worthy are you, O oh Lord. What, what are we saying when we're, when we're saying these things? We're, we're saying, Lord, you are, you are infinite in your worth. You are infinite in your value. We come to a place where we say, God, we recognize who you are and we worship you. In fact, when we talk about uh, worship, we're talking about worthship. What is the value or what is the worth of the Lord? And I'm, I'm convinced that what the Lord wants to do is he wants to take us to a place in our hearts this morning of where we say, God, I recognize your worth, but Lord, I really wanna, I want to worship you today. God, I want to, I really want to worship you for who you are. May I ask you a question? Have you ever gotten to a place in worship where you are just, maybe your hands are extended, maybe they're not, maybe you're, maybe you're on your face, maybe you're sitting in a chair. But in your heart of hearts, you're going, God, I, I see who you are. Lord, I see your, your value. Um, there's a song I keep thinking of as I'm even preaching here. I think I'm going to try to sing it here. Maybe you can help me along. This bombed last time we did this, so you can. <laughs> worthy, you are worthy. King of kings, king of kings, Lord of lords, you are worthy. Worthy, worthy, you are worthy. King of kings. King of kings, Lord of lords, I worship you. Can we sing it one more time? 
worthy. You are worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are worthy. Worthy. You are worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords, I worship you. What are we saying? Worthy, worthy. We're saying this is your, this is your worth. This is your worth. Is he worthy to us? Is he worth something? Is he valuable to us? Is he more precious than anything? We get to the place in our life where we say, Lord, you're, you're more worthy than anything. I, I give my life up to you. Lord, wherever you call, whatever you want to do in my life, whatever your desire is, God, help me to bend to that. Help me to fall to my knees and worship you. Worship you. Somehow they had lost that. And it's possible to even lose that in the church. This is a, this is a religious bunch, and somehow they had lost the ability to appreciate who God was. Oh, they could go to church, so to speak. They could pray. They could even hear about the attributes of God. But listen, they, they remained unmoved. And there must come a point in our lives where we receive the things of the Spirit. Where, where It's not just the Spirit of God is working out there. We come to the Lord with a hunger. We, we don't just say, Lord, you're going to hit me like a brick in the head, and then all of a sudden I'm going to see it. Yes, Lord, you work in me and you cause me to come to you. But, Lord, I have to receive you. Lord, I have to receive you. I have to, as we prayed earlier, I think uh, Crystal said this, Lord, soften our hearts. And we receive that. That's why John chapter 1 says, To as many as received him, did he give the right to become the children of God. So there's this recognition. And we stop fighting against the things of the Lord. We stop rebuffing God. Jesus said to the church in Revelation, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He wasn't talking to non-believers. He was talking to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And then he talks about us opening the door so that he might come in and fellowship with us. That's what he's doing here in Malachi. Over and over again, the Lord is coming and he's saying, Do you recognize, do you appreciate my, my worth? Why don't we go to Malachi chapter 1. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1. The oracle, or we could say the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel. So this is to the nation of Israel by, by Malachi, which simply means my messenger. So he is the one, some people have said, well, maybe this is an anonymous writer, not the case. This is written by Malachi the prophet, the last of our minor prophets. And God is crying out, listen, God is crying out through this whole thing. He is saying, I want you to appreciate me. 
I want you to get it because in that getting it, you will be ultimately fulfilled. You will find lasting happiness. You will find lasting joy. You say, isn't that arrogant of God? Oh, no, no, no. God has every right because there is nothing more valuable than the Lord. And for the Lord to point us to anything else would actually be the sin of idolatry. No, he is to be the utmost and the uppermost in our affections. So he comes to Israel and he says this. Israel, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. I love you. That's what God is saying. I, I love you. He's saying that clearly to this nation. You can hear God's heart. He's saying, appreciate me. I have loved you. That's what, that's what he's saying here in this text. And you would think that the response from Israel would be, oh, Lord, you love us. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you for loving us. It's not the response at all. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? So instead of saying, Lord, thank you for loving us, we, we understand your love. The question here is, how have you loved us? In fact, uh, through this, this, this text of scripture, through Malachi, we see this questioning and it's, a, it's not a good questioning. So the Lord comes in verse 2 and he says, I've loved you. Question, how have you loved us? Look at verse 6. You despise my name, but you say, how have we despised your name? Verse 6. Verse 7. You say, how have we polluted you? Chapter 2, verse 17, if you flip over there, chapter 2, verse 17. How have we wearied him? How have we wearied him? Chapter 3, verse 7, how shall we return? 3, verse 8, how have we robbed you? 3, verse 13, how have we spoken against you? So here is this, this questioning. God says, I have loved you. And instead of saying, Lord, thank you for, for loving us, the retort is, how have you loved us? It's interesting, the, the love of God is it's not obvious to self-lovers. So God can come to somebody and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. And instead of having a response of love back to God, which is the right response, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you for shedding your blood. I, I want to worship you as we were just singing. That's, that's the heart. The heart of somebody who is unmoved hears about the love of God, and they're not even... They're not even aware of his genuine love for them because, listen carefully, there's, there's a love for self. And at a certain point in our lives, the love for self, that cord must be cut. And once that cord of self-love is, is cut, 
then we're free to finally see how much God loves us. Listen, as long as we're as long as we're walking around head down, thinking about ourselves, thinking as Israel was about all of its problems. Look, Lord, we're we're not that powerful. We don't have that much money. We're under the rule of Persia. We've been disciplined by you. We've been chastised by you. Oh, Lord, it doesn't seem like you love us. You're telling us you love us. But by everything that we're going through here, by all accounts of, uh, of what we're seeing, we don't feel like you love us. And God comes along and says, until you get your head off of the ground, looking at the ground and looking at your situation, looking at the problems that are going on, and the focus of self, and by the way, we hear so much about self-love today. Oh, do we hear about self-love. You need to learn to accept yourself. You need to learn to love yourself. The problem with all of your problems is self-esteem and learning to Make sure that not only you appreciate yourself, but make sure that everybody else appreciates you. And my fear is we're even raising a a generation even of of young self-lovers that can't be told anything. Why? Because they've been told, they've been told by the media, they've been told at school, they've been told in society, life is about, life is about you. And so God comes along with the truth and he says, actually, in order to really be set free in your life, to truly be set free, there must come a point where you recognize that the problem is self-love. That's not the solution. The solution is not learning to love yourself more. The solution is learning to see yourself as God sees you and learning to see the love of God for you. That cord has to be cut. 2 Timothy, if you flip with me over to 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. Paul is talking about the last days, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. And he says this, here's the problem. For people, these are all bad attributes, for people will be, here it is, lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and so on. So what we have here is we have this, This text here where God is saying, I have loved you. And the retort back is one of skeptical scoffing. How have you loved us? Where's the proof of this? What an awful attitude, what an awful spirit to the Lord. It actually can lead to deep bitterness toward God. Deep bitterness. And there are people, listen, there are people that respond to the love of God like this. God comes along and says, I love you. And they say, how? If you knew my life, you've known what I've been through. That's exactly what Israel in context is saying here. If you knew all the things that I'm going through, God, it sure doesn't seem like you love me. In fact, now God God is put in the seat and the person is put over God with the questions for 
for God. So God tells them how he loves them, though. He's so patient. The Lord is so kind. And at some point, when that cord of self-love is finally cut, oh, when that thing is finally cut, completely severed through, it needs to be completely eradicated, completely demolished. When that thing is finally gone, all of a sudden, somebody goes, oh, Lord, you loved me the whole time, and I didn't even see it. Thank you for your love for me. Now, God gets into this doctrine of election, and he says this. Here's how I have loved you. If you go back to verse 2, he says, Is not Esau Jacob's brother? You remember back in Obadiah, God had laid out the discipline and the punishment for Esau because he was so different, indifferent to Jacob's plight, that is, his brother Israel's plight. He says, Is not... Israel, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. He's not talking about loved less here or loved more. He's simply saying, I love Jacob. Why Why do I love Jacob? Here in the context here, he's talking about nations. But he's not saying I've loved Jacob because he's more powerful or because he has more people or because he has more wealth. He's simply saying, I've loved him because I've loved him. He's in my heart. From the very beginning, this is what we're talking about when we're talking about the sovereignty of God. And by the way, there's no greater example of the sovereignty of God in election than the nation of Israel. God didn't look down through a tunnel of time and see that Israel would finally come around and would wave, pick me, pick me. No, no, that's not what's going on. God in eternity past decreed in his own heart. He said, I'm going to set my love on the nation of Israel. I love them. And I'm going to love them by being there for them. I'm going to love them in the ups and the downs, in the rejection and in the affirmations and all of it, the Lord says. And this is why we, to this day, continue to see the faithfulness of God in the nation of Israel's history, how faithful he is to them. And this is how faithful he is to us. This is why when we talk about our salvation, it's not based upon what we do every day. Oh, thank the Lord it's not. So the Lord says, I know what's going on today. I know what happened yesterday. And I even know what's going to happen tomorrow. And I still love you. I've still saved you, not because of what you were going to do on this date, and you were really going to please me big time. And there are people who have that thought in their head. Well, if I really, if I do well for God today, then they're going to accept me. And if somebody has a really bad day, they think, well, maybe I could possibly lose my salvation. No, no, the reason, the reason we are accepted is not because of our good works. The reason we are accepted is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. The fact that we are accepted in him. There is no sin. There is no imperfection in Christ. And he has loved us because of his, his son. He says, I've loved you because I love you. But then he says something pretty strong here. He's talking about national Israel. And then he talks here in verse 3 about national Esau or the Edomites. 
as his descendants would become known as, he says this, but Esau I have hated. We kind of wince at that. We kind of go, he, he hated them? Well, that's exactly what it says. So then some interpreters say, well, really what he means here is he loved them less. But that's not what the text says at all here. In fact, what it's saying here as far as his hate is he has rejected them as an enemy. So he has accepted, listen, he has accepted Jacob or he has accepted Israel simply because of grace, but because of Esau's sin, his persistent sin, he has rejected him completely. In fact, Obadiah tells us this, but Malachi says it here. He says, um, Esau have I hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. There would be nothing left of Esau, nothing left of the Edomites. In fact, today you can find absolutely no trace of them anywhere. Why is that? It's because of what God says here in his word. From eternity past, he decided that he would elect Jacob, and he decided to pass over and to reject Esau. You must be careful here. God never causes sin. He has never caused anyone to do evil. But as the sovereign God, he has the right to bring judgment and to withhold grace. And that's exactly what it says here in this text. Paul even takes it a little bit further, not only talking about nations, but going back to the two brothers of Esau and Jacob. If you flip over to Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9 verse 11, Romans chapter 9 verse 11, talking about Esau and Jacob, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. So what is he saying? He's saying before these guys were even born not based upon the things that they were doing, but that the purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older, older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved, and Esau I have hated. So in our text, he's talking about these two nations. In Romans, he uses this as an example to even talk about two brothers and give it as a perfect example about sovereign election. So he says to Israel, I've loved you. You might not see it. You might even scoff at it. You might be skeptical of it. But I love you, and it's not because of anything within you. It's simply because I have set my love on you. And even if Edom decides, hey, we're going to do what we want, we're going to be blessed and we're going to be successful, God says it won't work out. They might attempt it in their own strength. Look at verse 4, chapter 1. So Edom comes along, Esau comes along and says, well, we'll do it on our own. If God's not going to bless us, we'll take care of things ourselves. Notice what he says. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins. That is, the Lord might judge us and he might discipline us, 
but we'll take things into our own hands. We'll, we'll fix things. The Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He says, I will, I will thwart them. Listen, there, there comes a point. Person hardens their heart, hardens their heart, hardens their heart. Says, I'm going to follow my own path, my own direction. I'm going to uh, head into the darkness and just continue to head there more and more. The Lord comes along and he says, listen, because of his own sovereign election, his own sovereign grace, he says to some, okay, that's what you want. If that's what you're determined to do, if you're determined to bless your own life, if you're determined to be a success in your own strength and in your own abilities, and there are people who say, I'll do it without God. If God's not going to bless me, if he's not going to take care of me, that's fine. I don't, I don't need God. I'll, I'll do it on my own. There's a point when Esau, when he comes into Isaac, and if you remember when he realized he missed out on the blessing. He wept bitterly. Oh, did he weep? But here's the problem. It wasn't a weeping under repentance. It was just a bitter weeping. My life, I can't believe it. Can't believe it. Listen, there are two paths so clearly laid out here. And the Lord is pleading. The Lord is pleading with all of us here. To every person without exception in this room, the Lord is pleading. Oh, take the path of saying, your will be done. Take the path of softening. Take the path of, take the path of blessing. Take the path of kindness. So the Lord says, this is how you've seen it. Edom might seem to be doing okay. They're not going to do okay forever. He says this. I close with this, verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, that is you, Israel. And you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. God, you're not only great in our nation taking care of us. But Lord, you're strong in every other nation in this world. You, Lord, you are ruling over this whole universe. You're taking care of everything. Bringing us back to the place of worship. Maybe here's, uh, here's the question for us this morning. Do we appreciate God? Do we appreciate him? Have we, have we come to a place in our life when God says to us, I've loved you, we say to him, how have you loved us? Or do we say, oh, yes, Lord, I know you love us. Yes, Lord, I see your worth. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Would you stand with me? Would you stand with me? Father, today we come in Jesus' name. 
And we want to see your worth. Lord, that's our heart. Lord, we don't want to be like Israel here where you keep crying out to them and they're saying how. There's a, there's a scoffing that's going on. There's even a bitterness. Oh God, I pray that we would in our hearts and our in our spiritual eyes that we would see the worth of Christ. Give us spiritual eyes to see, hearts to receive, we pray. Help us not to go away saying, no, we'll do it ourselves. We'll, we'll, build, our, we'll build our own tower. And I pray you keep us from that. Keep us from building our own towers. That will just be demolished in the end. Like the sand, Lord, just washed away with the sand. Thank you, Lord. Instead of having the band come up, why don't we sing that song, Worthy, again? We'll sing it a couple times through. Worthy, you are worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are worthy. Worthy, you are worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords, I worship you. One more time. Worthy, you are worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords, you are worthy. Worthy, you are worthy. King of kings, Lord of lords, I worship you. With every head bowed and every eye closed. This is not a, a, a call for salvation this morning, but if you are, are standing here and you're just lifting something up to the Lord, as we talked about earlier, something on your heart, you're seeing the worth of Christ, the, the worthiness of God. We're not going to call anybody forward here this morning. We just say, I'd like to just acknowledge what the Lord is doing in my heart right now with a raised hand. Would you raise your hand? God is just doing something in your heart. I see hands all over. Any other hands? Anyone else? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I pray for each hand that's been raised. You see, you see God, the, the, the prayers that are being lifted up to you, the worship that is being lifted up to you. And God, sometimes in our prayer requests, before we even get to those requests, God, we're just saying, worthy are you, O Lord. You've revealed how much you love us, and we're seeing that. And, and we receive it. We receive it. We pray for every request that is being lifted up to you that you would answer, oh God. Answer each prayer according to your will. That your will would be done. Your kingdom would come. Praise your name. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. God bless you as you go this morning.